From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, hang your cloak on a peg, grab a stool, come gather around the fire. There are stories to be told and you are among friends. Peter Lavenda, an expert in Nazi history. The good old Nazis will rear their ugly heads on this program once again. Uh, and uh, he is, of course, the author of Unholy Alliance and Sinister Forces and a number of other books, monumental works, really. And uh, he's standing by. A young Will Power is on the other side of the glass behind the uh, big audio board, twisting dials and knobs. Welcome, Will. Uh, Ian is off gallivanting somewhere. Is he touring with his rockabilly band again? We're not sure. However, it's good to have Will Power, one of the great names in uh, in uh, entertainment and broadcasting. Anyway, we're good to, we're glad to have Will with us. Albert is here running our HOA, our hangout on air and uh, Albert it is it is working. We are up and live streaming on U- on YouTube. Excellent. If you'd like to partake in the live stream of this radio program on YouTube, here's how. It's real simple. Just go to my Twitter feed at Richard Serrett. S as in Simon, Y because I love you, R-E-T-T, S-Y-R-E-T-T, at Richard Serrett. Go to the top or near the top of the feed, find the tweet containing the HOA link, and just click on that, and you're in, my friends. Uh, please visit the uh, website strangeplanet.ca, which is essentially a landing page. Uh, because there's a radio section, a television section for my radio shows, my TV show. Uh, there's a live events section. Anyway, go to the um, the radio section, first of all, the radio page for this program. And uh, there's a lot there. So take a few moments, explore, and I really encourage you to take a minute and register. Become a member. It's a blue button on the left-hand side. Just click on that. And once you're a member, and it's, it's easy to register, it's free, it's fast, that gains you access to member-only areas like the past show audio archives. You can go back all the way to the summer of 2012 and listen to, to previous programs. And then, of course, all of the information on our guests and their books and links to their websites, it's all there. Now, from strangeplanet.ca, you can also go to the TV page, as I mentioned, and the conspiracy show, the television program, Season 4, of course, is well underway. It airs Monday nights at 9 p.m. Eastern on Vision TV. And if you missed last week, it was our episode on fluoride. And i got to tell you, that generated a lot of email. Whenever you sort of dip your toe into those waters, uh, you know you're going to stir up a lot of problems or a lot of trouble. And we we did, and that's why the show exists. We like to stir up a little trouble. Uh, and just a couple of weeks left in the season, of course, so make sure you check it out Monday nights, 9 p.m. Eastern on Vision TV. And just a reminder for my U.S. listeners, seasons one through three of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett, available in the U.S. on Hulu and Amazon.com. And finally, before we get to the uh, the, the main entree, the live events page at strangeplanet.ca. This is important. I, I, I want to draw your attention because it's quickly, uh, it's coming up quickly. Sunday, September the 11th. Strange Planet, that would be me, will be presenting Dr. Judy Wood, author of Where Did the Towers Go? Evidence of Directed Free Energy Technology on 9-11. That's Sunday, September the 11th. That's at the J.J.R. McLeod Auditorium. Tickets go on sale Monday, at least on strangeplanet.ca. If you just go to the live events page there. 
and uh, all the information, and you can order tickets right online. And my partners, of course, Conspiracy Culture, they'll be presenting this exclusive event with me. Again, Dr. Judy Wood, Sunday, September the 11th. Go to the uh, website for uh, Conspiracy Culture, conspiracyculture.com. And you can uh, you can order tickets online or on phone or go into their shop. All right. We are about to delve into uh, the unsavory links between the Nazis, the occult, mind control, modern American politics, and the sinister forces that lurk beneath the surface of what my guest calls our corn-fed consciousness. Peter Lavenda has researched the material for his books over the course of well over 25 years, visiting more than 40 countries and gaining access to temples, prisons, military installations, and government documents. He is the author of Sinister Forces, The Nine, A Grimoire of American Political Witchcraft, Stairway to Heaven, Chinese Alchemists, Jewish Kabbalists, and the Art of Spiritual Transformation, Unholy Alliance, A History of Nazi Involvement with the Occult, The Secret Temple, Masons, Mysteries, and the Founding of America, Ratline, Soviet Spies, Nazi Priests, and the Disappearance of Adolf Hitler, the Hitler Legacy, the Nazi cult in diaspora, and uh, several others. It's a great pleasure to have Peter Lavenda right here on The Conspiracy Show. Hello, Peter. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you? Terrific. Thank you. Uh, you know, one of the things that I followed uh, your work with, um, you know, the, the Nazi connection to American politics, and I'm also a, a big fan of, of people like Jim Mars, who's been on the program a number of times, the rise of the Fourth Reich, and Joseph Farrell, of course, who's written extensively uh, in this area. And um, the idea that, uh, you know, this this comes out for a lot of people, you know, right out of left field because they read in their history books that the Allies, you know, we won the war. Uh, but when then you you demonstrate to them that the the German army surrendered at the end of the, of the Second World War, but the, the Vice Chancellor never did and the Third Reich never did and that perhaps... You know, all of their, their war plunder and their, their scientists and everything else, their, their, um, their brain trust basically relocated their base of operations and their descendants perhaps continue to operate to this day. But what do you say to people who just find that absolutely ridiculous? Well, I, I sympathize with them, <laughs> quite frankly. It sounds like something out of a Robert Ludlum novel, but, uh, to be to be frank, I've myself personally encountered the the Nazi undergrounds uh, in South America, in specifically, but also in the United States. Um, I've done a lot of research in very uh, how shall I put it reputable areas, such as the National Archives, uh, the Library of Congress, to do all the documentation uh, research. But then I've done you know the physical uh, travel as well to South America, to Europe. Um, throughout North America, and uh, as the Hitler legacy, the book that I published about two years ago, reveals in the last section, there's the the, the address book of a very famous Nazi called Hans Ulrich Rudel, who was one of Hitler's favorite uh, pilots. He was a World War II ace, and Rudel uh, kept a very meticulous uh, record of his friends and acquaintances around the world, and it's basically a guidebook to the Nazi underground. In, in addition uh, to a lot of names that you might not recognize, there's a few that you would, uh, and one of them is a man called Klaus Altmann. You'll find his name, address, and phone number in that book in Bolivia, and Klaus Altmann was the, the pseudonym for Klaus Barbie. 
the very famous butcher of Lyon, right, right. who was eventually extradited to France to stand trial. There was an elaborate, and still exists, an elaborate underground network of true believers. Um, you know, I, I, I usually make the very uncomfortable uh, comparison with Christianity in the first 350 years. Uh, Christianity was underground. The people had to meet in catacombs. They had to meet uh, privately and secretly or else they would be persecuted. They would be executed even. That's right. Uh, but, but eventually, after 350 years, of course, they became the state religion. The similar thing is going on with the, the true believers of the Third Reich, of the, of the Nazi Party, particularly the SS, which was an elite organization. Uh, it was called, considered a criminal organization by the Allies, uh, meaning that any SS officer could be arrested and thrown in prison and had to be subjected to the, the denazification process. So you had tens of thousands of people who were virtually, they were war criminals. They were involved in, in terrible acts uh, against their fellow human beings, including and not limited to the concentration camps. And when the war was over, they were gone. As many of them as could possibly leave had left even before the war was over. And in fact, there were meetings held at high levels of the German government to ensure that the German technical uh, expertise and uh, companies' manufacturing facilities were relocated overseas so they would not fall into the hands of the Allies. Um, uh, naturally, Nazi treasure, all their ill-gotten gains was hidden. A lot of it was uh, recovered, but a lot more was not, uh, and made its way all around the world. And that's quite well documented. And who had access to that money? Who had access to those valuables, to that gold that was shipped abroad? but other members of the Nazi underground, which meant it was a worldwide global operation. They financed uh, uh, terrorism. They financed resistance movements, uh, revolutionary movements in North Africa and the Middle East, for instance. Um, so, I mean, there was – they were very actively involved. They just – they weren't just hiding. They didn't just take the money and run. They actually became very involved in politics. They became very involved in South American politics for sure. They were involved in Argentina and Chile and Paraguay, uh, in Uruguay and all the way up to Colombia. There were Nazi officials who were involved in trying to influence the political situation there. My visit to Colonia Dignidad in Chile took place in 1979, long after World War II was over. And yet they had a Nazi uh, installation there. It was a safe house and a sanctuary for war criminals. And we know that Hans Ulrich Rudel went there. Otto Skorzeny, Hitler's favorite uh, commando, had spent time there. Uh, Josef Mengele had spent time there. So you had a, a place that was being protected by the Chilean government uh, to the extent that they could actually run more or less openly a kind of safe house, a node in the network of the Nazi underground. How likely so, or unlikely? Yeah. Jeremy Corsi, of course, had a, a book out a couple of years ago, Hunting for Hitler. And, and in some quarters, some researchers say now it's it's an open and shut case. Hitler survived the Führerbunker and was spirited out of, of Germany at the close of the war, perhaps went to uh, Argentina or, 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 I don't know, Paraguay. What are your thoughts on that? Well, if you had asked me this about oh, 10 years ago or even five years ago probably, uh, well, about 10 years ago, if you had asked me this, I would have said uh, you're crazy. You know, Everybody knows that Hitler died in the bunker. In Unholy Alliance, I wrote about it specifically and calling people's attention to the date, which was April 30th, 1945. 
because that's a day with tremendous uh, religious and symbolic significance in Europe. That's the that's Walpurgisnacht. You know, that's uh, made famous by the movie about Dracula. You know, the the um, Bela Lugosi film. You know, that all this meetings of the the vampire takes place on Walpurgisnacht, and that's April 30th. It's a pagan holiday similar to Halloween, and I was very invested in the fact that Hitler had committed suicide on that day. I didn't question it. I mean, we all knew this. This was accepted historical fact, right? This was consensus reality. And then I came across, you know, intimations here and there, hints and suggestions that maybe maybe he survived. And I was having a hard time getting on board with it. I was in Indonesia uh, back, and I think it was in 2009, and I started hearing stories about, oh, well, Hitler, you know, he escaped to Indonesia, and he lived on this remote island. And I said, yeah, right. You know, my reaction was, sure, he did. Um, but they kept insisting, no, there was this guy, and they showed me photographs of this man, um, and I started to see bits and pieces of documentation, and I wasn't sure it was Hitler, but I for sure understood this was a Nazi war criminal who had managed to escape all the way to Indonesia after the war and lived out his life on a remote island in the Indonesian archipelago, very far from what we would consider civilization, I mean, very far from Jakarta. Very far from anywhere like that. All right, Peter, we're going to take a time out. We'll come back. We'll finish up on that thought. Did Hitler survive the Führerbunker? And then we'll sort of flash forward to today. How does the Nazi international affect geopolitics today, perhaps even American politics? Peter Lavenda, the author of Sinister Forces, Stairway to Heaven, Unholy Alliance, The Secret Temple, Ratline, The Hitler Legacy, and more. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. The truth is not out there. It's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. Welcome back. There we are. Peter Lavenda is with us. Sinister Forces, Stairway to Heaven, Unholy Alliance, The Secret Temple, Ratline, uh, The Hitler Legacy, and many more. And uh, his website, PeterLavenda.com. L-E-V-E-N-D-A. PeterLavenda.com. Peter, before the break, we were talking about you were exploring a remote island in Indonesia where it is rumored Hitler perhaps lived out his final days. What did you find out? Well, it was very strange. Uh, there was a man there with a handlebar mustache. Uh, he had been married to a blonde woman who looked an awful light, like like Eva Braun. Um, and then at some point, he uh, married uh, a local woman, Eva, the Eva Brown character, um, whoever she was, uh, disappeared. She went back to Europe, as I later found out. And uh, he told his uh, new wife, his uh, his local Indonesian wife, that he was Hitler. Um, she reported this and after he died. So there was a lot of mystery about this guy, and I, I wasn't on board yet with the fact that he might have been Hitler. But as I'm researching this, a, an archaeologist from the state of Connecticut, Nick Bellantoni, uh, had just come back from, the, from Moscow, where he had examined the skull the Russians said was Hitler's skull and found out that it wasn't. It wasn't even the skull of a man. It was someone else. So I was... A little confused by all of this, and I started to do more research in this subject, and I read the, the ultimate book, which, um, by Hugh Trevor Roper, British, uh, a British historian who wrote the book that, uh, determined definitively that Hitler had committed suicide in the bunker. 
And then I realized it was absolutely full of holes. There was, there was really no proof in the book that Hitler had died in the bunker. It was all based on, uh, strange snippets of interrogations he had of prisoners that were in British custody after the war. And then I found out he was given three months, uh, by British intelligence to determine, or actually just to present the story that Hitler had died in the bunker. That was his task. You have 90 days. You don't speak German. You won't have access to the prisoners the Russians have or the Americans have. Just our our German prisoners, you've got to talk to them and come up with an explanation of how and why and when Hitler committed suicide. And we're, by the way, we're calling this Operation Nursery. So Operation Nursery went into effect. At the end of 90 days, there was a big press conference. Hugh Trevor Roper gave his uh, explanation as to how Hitler died in the bunker. And that's it. End of story. Nothing to see here. Move along. Well, as I read through all of this and I started matching it with other data, it looked kind of ridiculous and it looked like it was an intelligence operation. It wasn't, you know, a definitive criminal investigation where we have a body, you know, we have forensic evidence. They had nothing like that. Um, they had some dental records, but the dental records were virtually invented. And one of the strange aspects of the dental records was that the dental technician in Berlin uh, that they found who had these records really didn't have them. He sort of memorized them. He didn't have the physical records. And he created two sets of dentures, one set for, I mean, two sets for Eva Braun and two sets for Adolf Hitler in the weeks before the fall of Berlin. Who needs two pairs of dentures when Berlin's about to fall and you're going to commit suicide in mm, a bunker? Mm-hmm. They found one set in the bodies that were recovered, that the Soviets recovered at the Reich's Chancellery in Berlin, uh, fit inexpertly into the skulls of people that they really didn't fit. And that was even noted at the time. So one set of dentures, it was like an insurance scam. You know, you have this body right, and you right. put the fake dental records in there and say, well, this is so-and-so. That's what happened. So I put all of this together and I'm thinking there's something really wrong here. I looked at some of the other evidence, the other interrogations that the Soviets had of their prisoners, which were all over the place. Uh, and I came to the conclusion that we have no proof at all that Hitler died in the bunker. Right. Uh, there's, just no, there's no proof. There's nothing. Vladimir Putin <laughs> has been such a disruptor and he likes to thumb his nose at the globalists and so forth and the New World Order. Why? Uh, he, surely he knows. Why doesn't Vladimir Putin come out and say something definitively? Not that it would be picked up by the mainstream press necessarily, but it would be interesting to hear him speak on that. Because he's implicated in this. Vladimir Putin was head of KGB. And in 1970... In the spring of 1970, uh, Andropov, Yuri Andropov, who was at that time head of the KGB, right. when, when Putin was just, uh, uh, you know, a young guy in, in, the, in the Russian service, Andropov goes and sends out this message. Go to this particular town, Magdeburg, in, at that point, at that time in East Germany. There's a parking lot. Dig up the parking lot. You're going to find a bunch of bodies that we buried underneath this parking lot and paved it over. Take out these bodies right away, take them out to the river, cremate them, and dump the ashes into the river. According to the Soviets' own records, these were the bodies of Adolf Hitler, Eva Braun, and the entire Goebbels family with their six children and Mr. and Mrs. Goebbels and their little dog, too. And all of these bodies were poisoned, killed, shot, whatever, we don't know because they didn't really do any autopsies on these bodies. They were dragged out and they were burned 
and the ashes put in the river. This, excuse me, this was in the, the spring of 1970. And it's exactly at this time when the guy I was researching in Indonesia turns up dead, also in the spring of 1970. In January of 1970, in the, the end of January, he's dead in a very mysterious set of circumstances in the town called Surabaya in Indonesia. I actually went there. I went to the gravesite. I really did the investigation in that part to find out who this guy was. And a couple of months after that, the Russians dig up the bodies of so-called Hitler and everybody else and destroy the evidence. We don't know what the connection is between these two things, but the, the time is, is extremely suggestive. And eventually, Vladimir Putin would have come into possession of this knowledge after he joined the KGB, after all this was done. And then he would have, you know, he would have known about this because it became a very big cause celebre back in 2009. When, you know, we revealed the fact that their skull was not Hitler's skull, uh, Putin was already very high up in the KGB hierarchy. So he would have been implicated in all of this. He would have special knowledge of what that, what those, who those bodies really were, uh, how they died, and why, particularly why they were destroyed in such a, a quick and dirty fashion. You know, when there was really no need to do it. These were bodies people had forgotten about, you know, buried under a parking lot in a town in East Germany. Why was it suddenly necessary for the KGB to freak out completely and then, you know, bulldoze open the, the, the parking lot, go down beneath the tarmac and the asphalt, find these bodies, drag them out and cremate them? There was something very mysterious about this entire operation. And if anybody knows these days, it would be Putin. Fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. Um, the idea of of a Nazi internationality, that the, the 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 war plunder, all of this um, money was sort of funneled into, uh, you know, various uh, uh, corporations and so forth, uh, in, in in a way, I guess, to sort of launder the money. Uh, think of like I think of you know when mafia mafioso try to go legit, you know, they buy legitimate companies and so forth. Mm-hmm. Uh, if that exists, where is where is its base? Do you suspect? Well, I think that the one thing the SS learned pretty quickly on was not to put all of your eggs in one basket. They began to realize that diversification was a good thing. Uh, they moved a lot of their assets to North America. Uh, they moved a lot to South America and to parts of Asia and other, other countries in Europe. They were being protected by Franco in Spain and by Salazar in Portugal, among other places. So they were moving their assets around. There was no central location uh, in the post-war period because they just didn't know where they would be strongest, where they would be weakest. Uh, they paid off Perón in Argentina, as we know. Um, they paid off Stresner in, in Paraguay, um, the generals in Chile. There was a, they were moving their stuff around and creating a network, a global network, where they could move their money, move their assets, their other assets, their technical assets, uh, set up manufacturing in various countries around the world. They knew that to put everything back in the in the German heartland was a mistake because it was going to attract another invasion, you know, another war in which they would lose everything as they did in World War One. They did not want a repeat of World War One, where everything was taken away from them. So the idea was let's diversify, let's move this stuff around, let's become a global operation. And I believe that's exactly what they did. I don't think there's any any one place that you could point to and say, well, this is the base. Um Switzerland obviously was very good for them for for hiding money and hiding gold, but it wasn't the only place they hid gold. Um, documents that were released during the Clinton administration 
back when there was a real serious effort to understand where the Nazi gold wound up, revealed that 40 tons, 40 metric tons of gold was shipped from Portugal uh, after the war, years after the end of the war, and shipped uh, to Macau. That 40 tons of gold then was divided into two lots. One batch of 20 tons went into China. We don't know where the documentation, the document stream sort of ends right there. We imagine it went to help prop up uh, Chiang Kai-shek in his fight against the communists. The other 20 tons wound up in Indonesia. Again, we go back to Indonesia for some reason, but there's 20 tons of gold there. And in the 1950s, uh, Sukarno, who was the head of the very first head of the Indonesian government after liberation from the Dutch, uh, Sukarno uh, suggested that uh, the non-aligned nations, those that were neither pro-U.S. or pro-Soviet, create their own banking system to compete against the World Bank and the IMF. And he was calling it the Revolutionary Fund. Uh, we believe, when I say we, I mean some researchers, believe that t- the 20 tons of gold that went to Indonesia was like the seed money for this Revolutionary Fund. Uh, what, to what extent were the Dulles brothers uh, involved in the exfiltration of a lot of that war plunder, John Foster and Alan Dulles? Well, a great deal, actually. I mean, um, especially Alan Dulles in Switzerland was cutting all sorts of deals. Uh, back and forth with the Nazis. Dulles had no particular uh, animus against the Nazis. He really didn't like the Soviets. And to Alan Dulles, the, the real enemy, and to John Foster Dulles, the real enemies were the Soviets. And they would do whatever they would have to do to fight the Soviets. And if that meant helping the Nazis to escape, helping them to escape prosecution at least, uh, helping their assets to escape or helping to hide the assets, that was fine. Remember, it was CIA who hired Reinhard Galen a uh, very famous intelligence chief of the Third Reich, to head up their operations in in Eastern Europe to actually run operations against the Soviets. And Reinhard Galen was a general. You know, uh, he was he was a very high-ranking officer, and they put him in charge of you know anti-Soviet operations for CIA. Yeah, on and what eventually- on, on what planet do you vanquish? Uh, uh, you know, the enemy on the battlefield, and then you let them take over your intelligence operation and your space program. <laughs> what could possibly go wrong? <laughs> so we did that, right? And then when the West German government is, is, you know, founded and they create their own intelligence agency, they put Galen in charge of that. So now Galen is in charge of West German intelligence, and he was, you know, one of the biggest Nazis that, you know, you'd, you'd find. So Dulles was very intimately involved with all of this, as later he became head of CIA in the 1950s, and he was very much involved in all of this stuff. He had no problem working with the Nazis, but then neither did the Catholic Church, right? So the Catholic Church then is moving you know, Nazis like crazy into South America and other parts of the world using fraudulent paperwork, fraudulent documents. It was even called the monastery route. I mean, it was that blatant and that flagrant that it was called the monastery route. They were using uh, Catholic monasteries, obviously, uh, churches, rectories, and that sort of thing, to move uh, war criminals out of Salzburg, Austria, and the, the occupied territories, the allied occupied territories, through northern Italy. And there was one route going straight over into South America. There was another route going straight down to the Middle East. So we find a lot of Nazi scientists and other uh, war criminals, SS officers, uh, finding themselves in Egypt and in Libya and in, uh, you know, in, in the rest of the Levant, in Lebanon and other places in, in the Middle East. So we were setting up operations there 
that were supposedly anti-Soviet. That was the whole purpose of this. And that's why the church was helping, because the church felt the Soviet Union, the atheist, you know, communist government was a far greater threat to Christianity and to the church than the Nazis were. So this was a question of the devil you know and the devil you don't know, or just pissing, uh, picking the, the lesser of two evils, basically. And that's what, that's what the church was doing. That's what Alan Dulles was doing. That's what we did with Operation Paperclip. Um, we felt the Soviets were this enormous existential threat. And uh, so we were going to cut deals wherever we had to. And we found the Nazis rather congenial. Uh, you know, they were sort of our good Germans, quote unquote, that we brought over not realizing that perhaps they were running their own operations under our very noses. And to what extent um, was Fritz Kramer, um, I mean, what kind of power did he have? Uh, rumor is that he found himself in the Pentagon, and uh, Fritz Kramer continued to exert some influence in the Pentagon. This was a, you know, another top Nazi, uh, Nazi criminal. Uh, some say even it was... At his behest, that Reagan laid the wreath at the SS cemetery. Uh, I think it was around 1980. Was it 84, 85? Uh, let's pick up on that point, uh, Peter. When we come back, sure. the music is percolating up. We'll take a time out. Come back, Peter Lavenda, PeterLavenda.com, Unholy Alliance and Sinister Forces. Back with more right here on the Conspiracy Program. My name is Richard Serrett. Keeping an eye on the New World Order. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. Welcome back. Peter Lavenda is with us. We were talking about uh, Fritz Kramer uh, before the break, and he was a high-ranking Waffen-SSF uh, member. Uh, and it is there's some dispute. Uh, some suggest that he found his way into the Pentagon through Operation Paperclip and exerted uh, considerable influence within the U.S. military-industrial complex, if you will, and some even go so far to suggest that it was at Fritz Kramer's behest that Reagan, uh, while in in Germany for a a scheduled G7 meeting uh, in May of 1985, uh, decided to pay a visit to the Bitburg Cemetery in uh, western Germany near the border with Luxembourg, where he laid a wreath uh, and buried in the cemetery were some 49... Waffen SS officers, uh, which obviously the optics on that were not good, and uh, Reagan's people said, "Well, he thought that there were U.S. servicemen buried there as well." Apparently, at one time they were, but they had been moved; their bodies had been moved many years prior. Uh, what, what, what's, the, what's, what's the deal with that, Peter? What are your thoughts on on Fritz Kramer? Well, I'm not too sure because there are a number of Fritz Kramers, and sometimes they get confabulated one with the other. Uh, there was a Fritz Kramer, of course, a, a high-ranking uh, SS officer. Um, I think he commanded uh, a Hitler Hitler Youth organization as well, an SS Hitler Youth division. Um, but he died in '59, uh, so he would not have been the one you're talking about. And there was another Fritz Kramer who actually was Jewish, uh, who did uh, die, I think, just a few years ago. Um, but he was very active in politics and very active as an educator and economist and everything else. Uh, I'm not sure if that's the Fritz Kramer. If it was, that, that Fritz Kramer was, was Jewish and he had to flee Nazi Germany because he was Jewish. So I'm, I, I think there's some confabulation as to which Fritz, Fritz Kramer this might be. All right. Um, I, I want to talk about, uh, possible Nazi links with, uh, terrorism. Now, 
you can disabuse me of this, but it has also been suggested that the, the Nazis did did corro- uh, collaborate with the Muslim Brotherhood, particularly Rommel, uh, in northern Africa uh, and in Egypt and so forth. Um, and so I guess do we then, if that is true, connect the dots? Is there a, 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 con- a continued relationship between the, the Nazi uh, international, we'll call them that, and, and present day is radical Islamic jihadism? Well, those links go back really right almost to the, uh, to the end of the war. You had some very important Nazi propagandists, for instance, like Jonathan Lears, who began working in Egypt for, for Nasser's government uh, when Nasser took charge. Uh, Lears was a virulent anti-Semite, uh, a very well-known pamphleteer and sort of uh, anti, anti-Semitic uh, academic. He spoke several ancient uh, languages. He was fluent in Arabic and in Hebrew. And he had a, a, like I say, a vicious dislike of Jewish people. So he was somebody who ran an, a newspaper in Argentina after the war, after the war called Der Weg, The Way, uh, to which people like Hansel Rudel and other people contributed articles. And then he moved over to Egypt and was running propaganda for Nasser's regime. But that's just the tip of the iceberg. Um, a lot of money went from certain Swiss financiers who were Nazis during the war. Uh, who had access to German funds, Nazi funds within in the Swiss banks, and were helping to finance uh, revolutionary movements throughout North Africa and in the Middle East. You had Otto Skorzeny, uh, Hitler's favorite commando, the one who rescued Mussolini in that very dramatic uh, rescue mission. Uh, Skorzeny outlasted the war. He never really was prosecuted. He escaped from a, an American POW camp, wound up in Franco's Spain, and then from there began running operations in Egypt in cahoots with Alan Dulles and the CIA, you know, because this was an anti-Soviet operation, quote-unquote. But what Skarzani was doing was training commandos to run missions against Israel. The very sort of origins of the Palestine Liberation Organization and Al-Fatah were people who were trained directly by Skarzani and his SS officers back in the late 1940s and early 1950s. And then we have the Nazi rocket scientists. Uh, Egypt had its own version of paperclip. There were a number of Nazi scientists in Egypt who were building missiles to fire into Israel. Uh, in fact, uh, Mossad, Israeli intelligence, found out about this and was slowly starting to assassinate them one by one. But this was a major problem for, for Israel, that you had this presence, this huge Nazi presence in the Middle East after the war was over. You know, don't they know the war is over, right? And for the Nazis, it wasn't. You know, the World War II was just a hiccup in their global plan uh, to get the world rid of communism, to get the world rid of Jews and, for, and other races, and to pit the Soviet Union and the United States against each other so they would destroy each other. This was the Nazi plan from the very beginning. And, of course, the destruction of Israel was part of that plan. So they were very heavily involved. The The, the origins of the of some of the jihadist movements go back to heavy Nazi involvement. The the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem was a very famous proponent of an anti-Israel, anti-Zionist government position uh, representing Palestinians. And he was in Berlin during World War II broadcasting, you know, to the to his people in Palestine, telling them to rise up against the British and the other allies. He lived uh, in, he lived in, in Germany. Germany. He lived in Berlin as as Hitler's VIP for like four years. Yes. That's exactly right. And a very nice uh, mansion in Berlin. So he was running operations there. After the war, he had to disappear. 
and he fled, but he wound up in North Africa, he wound up back in, in the Middle East, and he was very prominent as an anti-Semite and as a leader of, you know, of, of, um, of Arab re- resistance movements, let's say, against not just Israel, but against the other powers in the region, against the British and the Americans, et cetera, et cetera. So you have a very solid, uh, series of links and connections between the Nazis and especially post-World War II Nazis and um, Arabian, let's say, in general terms, Arab liberation movements and, of course, anti-Semitic movements. All right. We will uh, take another time out, come back, and uh, finish up strong with Peter Lavenda. Exploring theories, uncovering facts, and offering a different view of the universe. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Uh, Peter Lavenda stays with us for a, a little while yet, till the top of the hour. Sinister Forces, Stairway to Heaven, Unholy Alliance, The Secret Temple, Ratline, The Hitler Legacy. And we've been uh, obviously uh, delving into, um, well, much of what appears in an Unholy Alliance, a history of Nazi involvement with the uh, the occult. We haven't gotten into that uh, too much. Perhaps, well, we'll save that for another show with Peter. There's just This is such a, a rich vein to be mined. We were talking about uh, the Muslim Brotherhood, radical uh, jihadi uh, links to the Nazis. Now, the Muslim Brotherhood, which formed Hamas in the late 80s, uh, I've seen pictures online. I don't know if you can confirm or deny this, but the, the Hamas, are, are they still using the Nazi salute? I believe they are, yes. Wow. Um, they're not the only ones. There's, there's an interesting story, though, about Muslim Brotherhood. I'm not sure... How many of your listeners are aware? But back in the 1950s when Eisenhower was president, uh, Eisenhower, of course, was very concerned about the problems with the Soviet Union. It was the height of the Cold War. And he was having a meeting in the Oval Office, and the tapes, the transcripts of this meeting are available. You can find this and, and download it. Uh, they're online, and uh, they're, they've been printed in a number of books as well. And Eisenhower is having this meeting, and he's saying to his advisors, including Alan Dulles, who's in the room, he's saying, um, you know, if we want to help destabilize the Soviet Union, why don't we get the Arabs involved? And they ask him, well, what do you mean, Mr. President? And he's saying, well, can't we sort of arrange a kind of holy war, a jihad against the Soviet Union? Wouldn't that work out? Mm. You know? And Alan Dulles is saying, um, the only, like, the only clear-headed thing I remember him saying in all the reading I've done on Dulles, he looks at the president and he says, yeah, but what if they turn on us? Oh, and, oh, oh, oh. and we're talking about, you know, 1953 or 54 or something. So this is the meeting that was held where Eisenhower sends out the word, let's do what we can to unite the various warring factions of Arabs and Muslims in general not only in the Middle East, but throughout Central Asia, you know, go up into Azerbaijan and Tajikistan and Uzbekistan and all the stands, bring all these people together because they're within the Soviet sphere of influence. They're inside the Soviet Union. Let's get, let's get them to rise up in a religious war because the Soviets are atheists, right? And the Catholics, you know, let us know about that and they were very involved in that. Let's see if we can get the Muslims to help us out. And so they built a, a mosque. In Munich, a very famous uh, uh, event, where actually CIA money collaborated with Muslim, the Muslim Brotherhood, and said, "Let's get it. Let's get together. Let's get all of these people together." They hate each other because of language differences, cultural differences, even religious differences. But let's say, you know, let's prove to them you have a 
a unifying factor in your religion, in the Quran? Why can't you all get together, put aside your regional differences and your ancestral hatreds of each other, and rise up in a holy war against the Soviet Union? And the CIA sponsored this. And there's a photograph of one of the men who was the leaders, one of the leaders of the Muslim Brotherhood, meeting with Eisenhower at a meeting in New Jersey where they were cementing this relationship. So, you know, we've treated the Muslim Brotherhood, which is not a monolithic organization either. It also has its factions and its uh, its more violent side and its more Pacific side. We got involved with them at a very early stage in their development, and we tried to move them to use them as a as a sharp edge tool against the Soviet Union as sort of the point of the sword, and say, get all your guys together and let's destabilize Russia in you know in terms of of Islam, in terms of religion. And of course, we did that again during Afghanistan when the Soviets invaded. We played with religion. We tried to weaponize it so many times uh, in the years since World War II that it's not funny. And we've been using religion as a, as a propaganda tool and as a means of uniting peoples against our mutual enemies. But the blowback from this has been tremendous. How much, then, of what is happening in Europe right now with this, these constant, seemingly, well, certainly weekly, hasn't gotten daily yet, God forfend, but these weekly uh, terror attacks uh, with people pledging allegiance to ISIS – um, you know, these lone wolf attacks now we're seeing, sometimes there's maybe two or three people involved. Uh, I mean, can we also trace that back? Or has this terror cell, have they simply sort of metastasized and they're, now they're, they've broken away from any sort of connection to uh, CIA or, or uh, the Nazi international and now they're just, they're, they're, they're just going wild? What's, what's well, going on there? Well, there's a few answers to that question. Remember the things that I'm talking about, which may be new to a lot of listeners and a lot of readers, th- these things are common knowledge uh, among the Muslim populations of the Middle East. This is stuff they've known for a long time. They've grown up and lived with this. They, they know about how there was you know, manipulation of religious feelings by the West. Um, they, they go back to the, the days of World War I when we manipulated that situation. When I say we, I don't mean the United States yet. This was Britain and France. But they were manipulating the situation in the Middle East going back to World War I. The French have been heavily involved in trying to determine uh, the political realities, the political life of people living in the Middle East because of gold. Uh, excuse me, not because of gold necessarily, but because of oil, because of the Suez Canal, because of all these other region, uh, reasons. The French and the British carved up the Middle East. You know, foreign powers betrayed the the promises they made to Arab leaders, you know, to fight against the, the Turks, to fight against the, the Germans, betrayed all of that and said, uh, yeah, maybe later. You know, right now we're going to put Israel in the middle of Palestine. You know, we forgot to tell you about that. And then we're going to carve up countries and create a country called Iraq, you know, and create all these other countries. We're going to just draw straight lines through the desert and say, okay, this part is yours, this part is yours. We're going to completely forget about Kurd, Kurdistan. You know, that doesn't exist anymore. The Kurds are still there, but they don't have a country. We're going to do all of this stuff. And that went back to World War One. We are still paying for World War One For Sykes-Picot. Right? We're still paying for Sykes-Picot and the Balfour Declaration and all this other stuff that went on. You know, the, the documentation is pretty sad reading if you go through it and see what we said and what we did. And there's a country called Saudi Arabia, which wasn't called Saudi Arabia until after World War One. When we put in the Saud family, 
King Saud as the leader of that country when he had no claim to it. You know, it was Faisal, the Hashemite ruler of Mecca and Medina, who should have been the king of Saudi Arabia. Um, but we didn't like him. We liked the other guy. So we put the other guy in charge. We did all of this stuff. And Saud was a Wahhabi. You know, Saud was, his family was religious fanatics from the desert. You know, we put these guys in charge of that country. We created this mess. Now, to bring you up to date, just fast forward in the last few minutes that I have, I was in Indonesia in, um, oh, a couple of years ago, anyway. Uh, I was going to school, actually, at, at uh, getting my master's, uh, d- doing a season, uh, a semester in Indonesia. And during that time, managed to meet a man called Abu Bakr Ba'ashir. And he was one of the, he was the spiritual leader of a group called Jama'a Islamiya, which was responsible for the Bali bombings of 2002. Mm-hmm. He's the guy who gave the orders. Um, he was out of jail at the time. I was ac- I was able to meet him with a group of other people. And we sat there and he told us, you know, to our faces, that there was a worldwide Jewish conspiracy. And he started to basically go into the protocols of the elders of Zion. Right, right. You know, which was something that was a hoax created by the so the Russian secret police back before World War One. Absolutely. And he's, and he's telling me this like it's true. And he believes it 100%. And he's telling me, I, I, I'm suddenly back in the 1920s. Right, you know, I'm, right. I'm sitting across from this guy who's telling me, there is this 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 thing, and it's going to overthrow the world, and we have to do what we can to stop it, and on and on. I'm looking in the face of this man who is a true believer, and he's picked up the Nazi ideology to the letter. There are copies of Mein Kampf and Henry Ford's, you know, anti-Semitic uh, publications. I think they there renamed are, it, they retitled Mein Kampf the Jihad. The Jihad, yeah. yes. And they, re, they and the International Jew, which was Henry Ford's work. All of this you can get on any newsstand. In Southeast Asia, particularly in Indonesia, but virtually anywhere, um, because and, and translated into local languages, this is considered to be like the truth. This is this is the conspiracy theory, you know, par excellence. This is like the the, the master of them all. This so is this the, anti-Semitism is rampant in places like Indonesia. Then it's just it's believed. It's they believe all it, this stuff. It's it's believed as as gospel truth. And the funny thing is, there are no Jews. In Indonesia, well, surprisingly, you know. not surprisingly, I should not say, surprisingly, not surprisingly. There, there is a, a synagogue uh, near Surabaya, but they don't even have enough Jews for a minion to have a service. So there's not even 10 Jews in the entire nation of Indonesia, and yet they're afraid of a Jewish conspiracy to destroy their country when there's basically no Jews at all there. So, you know, nothing makes any sense. The facts argue against their their reality in their head. But this is dangerous because this is the guy that ordered those bombs to go off in Bali in 2002, the Marriott Hotel in Jakarta. You know, I mean, the Jama'a Islamiyah was an Al-Qaeda affiliate, and a lot of the, the 9-11 uh, the attacks were initially planned in Kuala Lumpur in Malaysia, which is right next door. So you have this connection to Southeast Asia and to terrorism, and there's this belief, as it is in the Middle East, as it is in Saudi Arabia, even in the UAE and Kuwait and places like that, that the Protocols of the Elders of Zion is a genuine document and it you know, it maps out the Jewish conspiracy. So this is what we have to deal with. This is what we're up against, yeah. Uh, to what extent do, will this Nazi international continue to sort of lurk in the shadows, uh, sort of pulling the strings, but not... I mean, will they at some point have a coming out party and say, we're back? Well, they've been kind of doing it. Uh, as, uh, as a writer once said, when the, when the Nazis come back, 
they're not going to come back with jack boots and swastikas. They're going to come back in three-piece suits. You know, they're going to they're going to fit the cultural context of the place where where they're going to be, where they're going to have the most effect. So they're not going to come back so blatantly. The neo-Nazi groups that you see are tools, they're pawns of what of what the true you know powers that be are. The true Nazi international. These people, they're they're the foot soldiers. They're they're just uh, expendable. So when you look at that, you're kind of looking in the wrong place. It's a kind of misdirection, but it does represent the ideology. It represents the philosophy. The Nazis, when they come back, they're going to be doing it a bit more intelligently, a bit sharper, with a lot less waving of flags and marching in the streets. They're going to do it quietly, and they're they're, they're going to get the job done their way. Or at least they're going to try to. Peter Lavenda, uh, so uh, compelling, this conversation. I really appreciate you spending some time with us, and I hope you'll come back again and again. I absolutely. Thank you very much for inviting me. PeterLavenda.com, the website. Again, let me spell the last name, L-E-V-E-N-D-A, PeterLavenda.com. And we've also linked up to his website. If you go to Strange Planet and uh, click on the radio page under tonight's guests, you'll see Peter's name. Just click on that link. That'll take you right there. Peter, again, a pleasure. Good night. Thank you. All right. My website again, strangeplanet.ca, your portal to the conspiracy show, the radio program, the television program, the live events, so much more. Say hello on Twitter at Richard Serrett, S as in Simon, T. Just a quick programming note coming up uh, next week. The original Rendlesham Forest UFO incident whistleblower Larry Warren will join us from Liverpool. Rosemary Ellen Guiley, of course, our paranormal investigator, will be along for our monthly paranormal news roundup. And Michael Tamez, uh, who uh, writes a blog and uh, has written several books about alternative health, he'll be with us as well. In the meantime, follow the truth.